0: Actually, backing up just a little bit to chapter 7. Starting in verse 54 of chapter 7. And when they heard these things, these things spoken of previously, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, "Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God." Then they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen. He calling upon God and saying, "Lord Jesus." Receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great, great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hauling men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. Please be seated.
1: Good morning. Thank you, going for the reading of the word. I'd like to give you six words. These six words, I believe, are going to encompass the text this morning. Okay, so if you have something to write with and you'd like to jot these six words down, um, the, here, here are the six words, six key words, I believe, that we can glean from the text this morning. First one's martyrdom. Sex, second one is lamentation. The third one is persecution. Scattering, proclamation, rejoicing. Martyrdom, lamentation, persecution, scattering, proclamation, and rejoicing. I'd like you to have those six words as a preface to our time in the Word this morning. I'd also like to remind you of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Some of you perhaps are saying, you keep reading that verse. Well, it's important that we keep that verse before us as we're going through our study in the book of Acts. Because it serves as the outline for the entirety of the book of Acts. In fact, it's, it's especially important this morning because we're at one of those hinge points in the text. OK, this morning, last week was the preface to that hinge point, And now we're right at that hinge point in the text today. This morning, I would also like to put before you words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Chapter 16, verse 18, you might remember in his conversation with Peter, Jesus saying these words, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will build my church, Jesus says. So when you open to Acts chapter 8, when you read the beginning of Acts chapter 8, after seeing what's just happened to Stephen, you might be inclined to wonder, how could God allow such a thing to happen? Why would God allow this to occur? Or maybe asking the proverbial question that many today are asking why such bad things happening to such a godly person as Stephen? I mean, if Jesus has spoken that he will build his church, Acts 8 seems to contradict that message, at least at the outset. If the gates of Hades are not going to prevail against His Church, how can we read of such a stoning and subsequent persecution of His Church? I mean, Jesus, after all, you told your disciples to wait for that power from on high, and, and with that power, your disciples are, are, are told to, that then that they're going to be witnesses to Jesus. But but a witness unto death—really—is that the message? And in light of some of those questions and some of those concerns, I I would put forward four passages of Scripture that I believe are solid foundations. Spoken by Jesus himself, spoken to his followers, but spoken to those by extension here today, I believe are good reminders for us. They're all four in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 6, verse 40, which says, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Luke chapter 9, 23 and 24, he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Luke chapter 14 Just read 26 and 27 and also 33. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then we read Luke 21, passage we alluded to last week. It's pertinent again for this week. Starting in verse 12. But before all these things, Jesus says, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogue and to the prisons. You'll be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth And wisdom. I will give you a mouth and wisdom, says the Lord, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And that was so true in the life of Stephen, wasn't it? You will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated for all for my name's sake. You see, Luke here in the book of Acts. In fact, Acts 1 verse 8 outlining the entirety of that book. Part 2 of that outline begins today. The gospel witness is about to move mightily into Judea and Samaria. When you see Luke's outline and you see Stephen's stoning, following followed up by great persecution. Persecution of the church, not just an individual. You're left wondering how this gospel is going to move anywhere. How in the midst of such awful time is this gospel going to move forward? How does such a gospel advance when persecution arises? I would turn your attention to the beginning of the book of Philippians for just one moment. I believe these verses are pertinent as well. Beginning in verse 12. Paul says, but I want you to know, brethren. I want you to know because, and I just stop right there because, you see, I I believe like Paul's audience here, Philippi, those who would be reading and listening, hearing this letter that Paul is writing while he's in prison, I believe we also would, would come to this from the perspective that being put in prison is a bad thing. Paul says, I want you to know. That the things which happened to me have actually turned out for, here it is, the furtherance of the gospel. So that it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So just as Paul's chains serve for furtherance of the gospel. Church, that that idea that Paul has submitted there in the letter of Philippians, I believe is true right here where we're at in Acts chapter 8. For you see, Stephen's death, his martyrdom also serves, and we'll see this more clearly as we keep going, his martyrdom serves for the furtherance of the gospel. How is it going to advance this gospel into Judea and Samaria? The seed of the martyr, Stephen, has been planted. His life, and more pointedly his death, serves as as the catalyst, that hinge point I spoke of. The hinge point upon which the gospel moves forward out of Jerusalem into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And you know, thinking about all of this, it's important that we also consider the ramifications in our own life for this gospel. This gospel that's moving. What what message, church, is your life right now communicating about this gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you furthering the gospel with your life? Will you, in your death, and and I pray this would happen in my death. Will you in your death advance this gospel as Stephen did? And in the interim, in the time that the Lord still gives to you, the breath that He allows you to have, how are you going to intentionally count it all loss for the sake of Christ Jesus? You see, with this power that's given to you in Christ... Through the Holy Spirit, will you manifest it in such a way that it becomes obvious to those around you? That obvious mark that I am a witness for Jesus. This is not a program. This is my life. You are a witness. The power was intended to be used and accessed in such a way to be a witness, to bear witness to Jesus. As a witness for Jesus, are you willing to enter into the realm of the uncomfortable, the inconvenient, the hurting, the painful, the persecuted, the suffering? See, Stephen was seized, wasn't he? He was taken by force before the council because of his stance for Jesus. Stephen serves truly as a witness for Jesus. It cost, it cost him his very life. 1 John three sixteen. by this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See, Stephen is much more than the first recorded martyr for Christ in the Scriptures. He he serves as a wonderful example of a Christ follower. He wasn't... Let's remember, he wasn't one of the apostles. He wasn't a a pastor, an elder. He was appointed initially as one of those seven men to take care of a food distribution problem in Acts chapter 6. And yet the Lord has another purpose for Stephen... Look at this. A surrendered Stephen, a willing and obedient Stephen, opened the door for the furtherance of the gospel. Praise the Lord for such a one. Praise the Lord that that would be true of us. If was to put together a summary of this text here before us, would read this way. In the midst of great lamentation over Stephen's recent martyrdom, great persecution comes to the church at Jerusalem, forcing a great scattering of believers among Judea and Samaria. Philip, one of the seven, mentioned there in Acts 6, preaches the Christ, and as a result brings great joy to the city of Samaria. So as we look at the text this morning, I'd like for us first of all to see that this death... ...martyrdom of Stephen leads to great persecution. We see this here at the beginning of the text... ...at the first part of verse 1. We see it also picked up again in verse 3. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that's Stephen's. At that time a great persecution arose against the church... ...which was at Jerusalem. Looking at verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Saul's name, if you'll look a few verses prior to chapter 8, there at the end in verse 58 of chapter 7, his name is mentioned there. The witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And in fact, three times in a very short frame of reference, Saul's name is mentioned, associated with being in opposition. First to Stephen, then to the church in Jerusalem. The church, contextually, as we read the book of Acts up to this point, we see that the church had been under fire for quite some time. We see that the apostles had been in and out of prison for preaching and teaching the name of Jesus, preaching and teaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whenever given an occasion for testimony. But now, in light of Stephen's death, that line seemingly has been crossed, and the church is actively being persecuted. In fact, Saul's own testimony a little bit later in the book of Acts, in Acts 22 and in Acts 26, leads one to believe that Stephen was the first of several who were seized, several who were thrown into prison, several who were killed eventually for their allegiance to this movement called the Way. Persecution was a way of life for this man named Saul. He made havoc of the church. The word has in mind there a ravaging, tearing apart, as was like a wild animal might do to an object. (laughs) That was Saul's life. This was his passion the destruction of any and all who opposed his learned way of Judaism and his own righteousness of the law. Philippians 3.9, right? That was the way he used to operate. He showed up at the door and with letters of authority from the council to arrest those associated with Christ, crucified and resurrected. Imagine opening your door being dragged away to prison because of your stance for Jesus Christ. Imagine women. I, I don't believe, based on what I read in the text, that Paul was, uh, Saul, excuse me, here, was any respecter of persons. The text says men and women. They were dragged away. Put in prison. Awaiting Sentence. The text couldn't paint any clearer contrast in these first few verses of Acts 8. One writer says that that the one talking about Stephen gives his life for the church's well-being. The other being Saul falls upon it for its destruction. The text is painting quite a contrast here. A Greek-speaking Jew, Stephen... A man of good reputation among the brethren, a man full of faith, a man full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. This man is willing to place himself in harm's way as a spokesperson for Jesus. Notice he didn't go out looking for trouble. He did stand for the truth of Jesus Christ, though. Did not compromise that truth of Jesus Christ. He saw the audience before the council as his occasion for testimony. That's contrasted with this young man named Saul who, the scripture says, was consenting to his death. He made havoc of the church in Jerusalem. And in Philippians 3.6, as he's given his own testimony concerning zeal, persecuting the church, dragging men and women out of their homes, putting them in prison, casting his vote against these people, even unto death. So Saul was the leader of this great persecution toward Christ's church. His zeal to cleanse the church. Anyone who subscribed to the things Stephen spoke of, they needed to be locked away. You See, Saul was very much a driven man. He was ambitious in many ways. Being driven and ambitious aren't necessarily bad things. But when they're used in this particular context, for this particular purpose... His great learning had blinded him. And the text, church, will literally bear this out in Acts 9. The Lord himself will put a stop to his zeal for persecuting Christ's church as he travels along that Damascus road. So we have Stephen and Saul and two men very much at this point in the text, very much unlike each other. However, because of God's goodness and favor, these two men will exhibit similar characteristics by the time God is done dealing with Saul. Amen. The text says that great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. We need to understand, and we need to see this very clearly it's true. The church, people, were persecuted. Jesus talked about such a time to come. In Luke 21, I read the text. Now here it is. It's happening. So Stephen's martyrdom serves as a catalyst for great persecution, primarily spearheaded by Saul. But Stephen's martyrdom, according to the text, also leads in the immediate to great lamentation. Look at verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. These devout men... Praise the Lord for these devout men. Scripture doesn't give us names. We don't know who these devout men were. But praise the Lord that they stood forward. They took Stephen away. They gave him a proper burial. Not necessarily against the law, but the public display of emotion. This great lamentation over such a death. Was prohibited by Jewish tradition of the day. So, in light of that, to step forward to, to provide burial for Stephen, this man who had been stoned, would have been dangerous. In light of the context. Anybody here willing to step forward and stand up for someone who just had stones thrown at them? For their stance and their belief in Jesus Christ? For their stance about who God is, their stance about the right view of who Moses is, the law. The temple, remember those were the four charges set against Stephen. Let's not be quick to dismiss verse 2 as just some summary verse. Because these men who stepped forward to bury Stephen were themselves risking much by associating themselves with one whose name was Stephen. You notice the text provides a contrast in 2 and 3 where it says, these devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. That would be Stephen. As for Saul, verse 3, we need to understand that the martyrdom of Stephen produces an immediate lamentation, weeping over a man who loved the Lord. It also produces a a giant snowball effect, if you will, of persecution against the church at Jerusalem. Stephen's death. The text has described the manner of such persecution, showing how Saul's role was played out in particular. But what did the persecution result in? The second half of Acts chapter chapter 8, verse 1, is instructive here, and this leads us to the third point, this great scattering. So we have... Martyrdom leading to great persecution, and in the immediate, it led to great lamentation. But the result here, if we look at the end of Acts 8.1, is that there is a great scattering. Look at the text. They were all scattered. Pause just for a moment. All, sometimes when it's used in the text, um, can can very much mean all. Here, more than likely, um, a general statement, because we see at the end of 8.1... Not all of them actually were gone. The apostles stayed. Okay? And there's high likelihood based on what we read later on in Acts, Acts chapter 11. We see they were in the house, right? Uh, We'll see that when Peter is released from prison, he goes to the house. There's some idea based on the scripture that not every single one, but the statement that's put forth here, all in general, many were scattered. Okay? Okay? This church was scattered. We also need to remember that when, we, when it speaks of all, perhaps there, there's, there's been put forth and submitted the idea that, and, and very well could be, uh, at least in part, but we need to remember that Stephen, who was stoned, was um, a Greek-speaking Jew. And perhaps those who were in the same line as Stephen were the core group of believers that were persecuted here. That being said, I do not believe that as Saul is going into the homes wreaking havoc upon the church at Jerusalem, I don't believe for a moment that Saul was going in trying to discern whether, is this a Greek-speaking Jew or is this a Hebrew? They were being persecuted. Let's just make that statement. The church at Jerusalem was being persecuted. And they were being scattered here. Scattered where? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria... ...except the apostles. So out of this persecution comes this great scattering of the church. And perhaps the scattering of the church is foreign to you. The idea of the word here, scattering abroad. And we get from the text the answer as to why the scattering. There's persecution. Persecution arose against the church. We also see from the text the answer for for what purpose... Does God allow such a scattering? Remember we asked the question up front, why would God allow such a thing? I believe the text starts to shine light on that question. You see, it seems to be the case that God doesn't scatter His church haphazardly, nor without purpose. See, God's ways are always intended to bring about His glorious purposes. Isaiah tells us that His ways, His thoughts are much higher than ours, right? So even though we may not fully understand them in our way of thinking, we trust and and depend upon the Lord and know that He's got this taken care of. Don't know all the answers. Don't know how it's going to happen, but God's in control. That's not some cliche answer, church. That is grounded and rooted in the faith of one who is walking with Jesus Christ. That's what that is. So for what purpose would God orchestrate such a scattering? What good purpose could come from the scattering of saints across the region? Judea and Samaria. You know, I was thinking and reminded here of the church in China. And and how thinking about what God's done and is doing in China, it's a good reminder of God's scattering. There was a time not too long ago when Christianity was forcefully removed from China persecution in China was and still is very real and yet when you look back over 60, 70, 80 years give or take in China you see God's hand all over it because you see there was a complete stripping away of Christian pastors, Christian teachers Christian missionaries there was quite a scattering from what I gather from what I can understand. The church there was persecuted. Many were killed for their faith in Christ. And yet what I'm hearing these days about China is that China is a real beacon for Christ. Many genuine believers exist today in China. Not tens, not hundreds, not even thousands. The reports I'm hearing are speaking of millions in China. In China. Living out their faith, walking with Christ in the midst of ongoing persecution. I read another report just recently that, that estimated, and this is a statistic, don't go back and you know. Statistics are what statistics are. Sometimes they're they're more accurate than others. But the line nevertheless caught my attention. That by the year 2025, it's estimated that some two-thirds of China will come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's exciting. I pray it's infectious here in these United States of America. You see, when God scatters his people, he does so with the purpose of planting them. Planting them. It's not a scattering just to scatter them, see you, bye. It seems to be the message here in Acts chapter 8 in particular. God does not scatter without purpose. The furtherance of the gospel is at stake right here in Acts chapter 8. And some of you may think, well, it seems like God could have intervened here and brought about different results. Let me, let me remind you, God did intervene. He chose to do it in a way maybe that you wouldn't have chosen to do it. But he did intervene. He scatters his church. This church which Jesus says, I will build. And you might say, odd way to build. Really? Where were they scattered? The text says, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Does that phrase sound familiar? If not, look at Acts 1.8 again. You shall receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. Here it is. And in all Judea and Samaria. And to the end of the earth. You know, I would like to just bring before you here. What Jesus says there in Acts 1 verse 8. Those words I'm sure sounded great. And exciting to the ears of the disciples. As Jesus taught them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. But if you notice. If you notice in that text. In Acts chapter 1. It doesn't say anything in particular about a scattering. It doesn't mention a persecution against the church necessarily. No martyrdom specifically outlined in Acts 1 verse 8. Yes, it says bear witness to Jesus, but no specifics on how all this might get played out in their lives and the ramifications for doing so. So now fast forward to Acts chapter 8. Martyrdom's bell, if you had a bell. Martyrdom's bell's rung. It's, 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 it's going. It's going off. In the stoning of Stephen, there's great lamentation. There's great persecution now in motion against the church. A great scattering now results. This seems like, in many ways, very bad news. And yet, they are scattered Where? into the regions of Judea and Samaria. What did Jesus say about this power from on high? What would be the result of receiving such power? And where would this power, according to Jesus, be exhibited? In the very place where they are going to be scattered. My point is this. There are times I believe Jesus speaks in his word about what he's going to do. Sometimes we miss What God says in His Word, He's going to do, because all we're looking at is, oh, this is awful. Oh, this seems so bad. Oh, this is terrible. When He may very well be using your situation, your circumstance, to bring about His greater purpose. Text says they were scattered into these regions of Judea and Samaria. When you read the book of, the outline of the book, Jesus says that they are going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, which they were for a time. And then they're going to move out of Jerusalem. Here it is. They're moving out. And we need to remember the church at Jerusalem had a lot of things going for it, right? Gifted in many ways, wonderful fellowship, excellent teaching, prayerful church. And yet this church is scattered. I want you to see God is not absent here. In the midst of a scattered church, like the one we're reading about here, this Jerusalem church. In the midst of a scattered church is a crucified and resurrected Christ who serves as the head of his church. This is his church. One writer said that the expression scattered is meaningful to the Jews who lived in dispersion for the exile and subsequent persecutions had directly affected their lives. He says that now the church enters the era of being scattered. The Old Testament prophets taught that when a Jew lived in dispersion, for example during Babylonian exile, he was receiving God's just punishment for earlier disobedience. Conversely, the New Testament church considered The dispersion of the Jews, divinely ordained means of providing a beachhead for the spread of the gospel in foreign territory. You see, their mindset was all different. That ought to stir us as well. What seems to be bad news? What seems to be, it's not fair. Perhaps he's put us, those in Christ Jesus, in these situations. I pray that we would see it much like the church saw it. Because we'll see just in a moment what they did in the midst of their scattering. They weren't trying to collect their things. They were most concerned about his word. And you know... Some of you here today, maybe, you know, that word scattering, you, 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 you feel right now like you're scattered in many ways. And you too, perhaps, are having a hard time seeing God's hand in what's happening, whether it be job-related, work-related, marriage-related, family. Perhaps it's a period of spiritual dryness, and you feel scattered. You feel far from the Lord. I'd like to just encourage you, and I pray this text this morning would be an encouragement. And it calls for hope for you. You're, you're scattering sensation, whatever that may look like on your end. It's intended to produce God's purposes in your life. I would want you to know that. Trials produce. That's the message of James, isn't it? Chapter 1. And by the way, to whom is that letter sent? If you read James chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Greetings, my fellow scattered ones. That's the message. But James isn't the only one who speaks of a scattered group of people. If you turn to the very next one, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims, to the sojourners, right? Of the dispersion, of the scattered group. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Isn't it interesting that here we have two epistles that directly deal and minister to the scattered? They're both writing to those who had been scattered. And what Acts is talking about right here is not some standalone event, but perhaps it's intended to show. The church is God designed it to be, at least in part. The church which Christ said he would build. Church, do you believe that? Do you believe that he's going to build and he has been building and he's going to continue building his church? Not just word speak. Do you see yourself as a part of his church? Vitally connected to the head and actively connected to the other living stones which make up his church. Understand that the scattering of God's church in Acts 8 was not due, as we saw in Old Testament time, primarily that was due to disobedience, rebellion, time and time again. So what's God up to by allowing the scattering of His church? Here's what I believe is going on. He's about to take His power in the form of genuine Christ-following witnesses into the regions of Judea and Samaria. His scattering is going to result in a planting A planting of gospel fruit. How's that going to come about? Keep looking at the text. Acts 8, verses 4 through the first part of verse 6. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. I love this part of the text. You have martyrdom, lamentation, persecution, scattering, and now you have proclamation. And in general, we have a statement here in verse 4. There's a general statement, verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. We know from Acts 8. We also know from Acts 11. If If you look over at Acts 11 and verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. That's the period we're talking about right now, okay? They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. We'll get into that down the road here, Lord willing, this summer. But we see where they were scattered. What did they do when they got there? text says they went everywhere, preaching the word. Preaching the word. Young the Preaching the word. The gospel, the good news. They went everywhere preaching the word. Notice they were not given a specific command right here to do so. An angel doesn't show up and say, Hey, you're about to be scattered. And then you go when you get scattered, I want you to make sure you preach the good news. We'll see that in the text. Church is scattered. There seems to be an assumption in the text. As they were scattered everywhere, they were preaching the word. They were telling the good news of Jesus. All of them, the church. We talk a lot about the importance of giving testimony of God's goodness in our lives. But you know, truth be told, before we give the good news, we must ourselves be well acquainted with this good news. We must first preach this good news. To ourselves. You see, the church, it's important. Look at the text. Not just the apostles, not just the elders. The church was preaching the word. Do we see this? From the outset. You look back Acts 2. The church, the people, had a love for God. They had a love for people. The church had a love for one another. They enjoyed fellowship with one another. They understood that their fellowship with one another flowed out of fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. They understood and they rejoiced in their union with Christ. Not only had they died with Christ, not only were they buried with Christ, but they were raised with Christ as well. And that manifested itself in a church walking in newness of life. Romans 6.4 So from this general statement in Acts 8, 4, Luke brings up Philip in verse 5. You know, it's interesting to think about this. Here's the general statement of, of what happened when they were scattered. And it's almost as though Luke, as he's, he's being led by the Holy Spirit in writing, there are all kinds of people from this church that were scattered. And Luke now is going to bring up one of those folks who were scattered. His name is Philip. Philip was one of the seven, along with Stephen, wasn't he? Philip. So we see that, we read through the rest of Acts 8. Philip is going to take center stage here a bit. Luke is going to be writing about what's going on with Philip in the city of Samaria. It's important to note that both Philip and Stephen, they they share some common A bond, if you will. They're both described in that Acts 6 text as men full of the Holy Spirit. And we see them both also performing miracles and signs before the people. The scattered church went everywhere preaching the Christ. The Christ, the Messiah. And Philip, one of the several scattered church members, he went down to Samaria. Actually, he went up. He went north, right? About 40 miles or so north of Jerusalem. But we need to understand when when the text is talking about Jerusalem, if you're leaving Jerusalem, you go down. If you're going to Jerusalem, you go up, right? Jerusalem is called that city on a hill, isn't it? Okay? Philip went to Samaria and he preached. The word here for preached is a different word than the word used in verse 4. It comes from the word keruxo, which is to herald or to declare. And the use of the word here in verse 5 went down to the city and preached Christ to them. It really has in mind that he was continually preaching Christ to those in Samaria. Heralding Christ's message. Philip preached to them. He heralded this message of the Messiah to them. A Messiah that the Samaritans would, would have known. They're very well aware of this Messiah. In fact, We can use the story of Jesus with the woman at the well as an example. In John chapter 4, 24 through 26, Jesus says in that interchange between he and the woman at the well, he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, listen to what she says. I know that Messiah is coming. Who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell you all things. And then we see the line from Jesus I who speak to you am he. You see, the Samaritans, Jesus not only reaches out to a Samaritan woman, but he also opposes this character, this this good Samaritan. Right? Remember that? A parable which no doubt would have given a resident Jew a bit of a headache. A good Samaritan. Mm. I don't see that one. How's that possible? One of the reasons Jesus told the parable, perhaps. (laughs) Yet Luke here records that Philip went down to Samaria to preach the Christ to them. The proclamation that came into Samaria came as a result of scattering. The scattering came as a result of the church being persecuted. And the persecution had its roots in the martyrdom of Stephen. Acts 8, verse 6 gives a picture of the fruit of Philip's proclamation. Says the multitudes with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Acts eight verse seven gives some examples of what was happening in Samaria as a result of the proclamation of the Christ and the miracles being done. We get picture of the unclean spirits coming out of people. We get picture of, of the paralyzed folks were healed, the lame were healed. You see when Christ is preached. When God's word is cast out like seed. He will accomplish exactly what he desires. His word of truth will not return to him empty or void, right? That's what the word tells us in Isaiah. It's going to accomplish the purpose for which it's sent. His word opens up blind eyes. The preaching of this word has the power to save. That's what Romans chapter 1 says. There are no other words that have that power, church. That's why I like to tell folks all the time, my opinion doesn't matter a whole lot. This is the word that saves. This is the word that has the power to transform. This is the word that was being preached. The word was being preached in Samaria. His word opens blind eyes. Those things deemed impossible with man... ...are possible with God. In fact, we see in that passage in the Gospels... ...that all things are possible with God. The lame walk, the blind see, the mute speak... ...the deaf hear. God's word accompanied by God's mighty power. That's the key. God's word accompanied by God's mighty power... ...it was working in through Philip at this time... ...in Acts chapter 8. It's important he brings this up... ...this this idea that that Philip was, was doing these miracles... ...not on his own, but God was using Philip... ...in this power... They were hearing and seeing something. And it's important contextually for us to understand why Luke might bring this out right here because in just a moment, he's going to bring up another man present in Samaria who was also doing some, it's called magic. And so I believe Luke, right out of the gate as he introduces Philip, wants us to understand as the reader that Philip, the power that Philip is exhibiting is the power of from the Holy Spirit. This power from Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that's going to be received by God's people to be a witness for Jesus Christ. So he's setting the stage for that to come. He's putting forth the power of God. And we'll see here next week there's this man in Samaria. His name is Simon and he's quite an individual. Suffice it to say for right now that Luke is... He's mentioning Philip's activity and the power of God at work in Samaria. And the result, church, let's not miss the result. The result there at the beginning of verse 6 is that with one accord, multitudes heeded the things spoken. Praise the Lord. The preached word has the power to bring about transformation, not only for this group in Samaria, but for you as well, for this church. Notice the two words, hearing and seeing. When people hear the heralded message of Christ, when they see the message of Christ lived out in you, when you walk in newness of life, when you pursue holiness, when you reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, when the things of God take precedence over the things of the world, and when the church is seen as a community of believers and not simply a building in which we come on a Sunday morning. See, hearing the preached word must be accompanied by seeing the preached word. As an elder, I'm impressed in an ever-increasing measure in this of what God has called me to. It's not simply to teach preach on a Sunday standing up here before you. It's part of it. But to shepherd, not to remain absent Monday through Saturday. See, there's a responsibility on my end and I would be quick also to point out from the scripture that Just as there's a responsibility on my end, there's responsibility on your end. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. If you're walking in the light of Christ, let that light shine before all men that they might see. Well, what's the end result of God's word preached? Verse 8 gives us a summary there. And there was, a, there was great joy in that city. Multitudes, according to the text. With one accord, they heeded the things spoken by Philip. What did Philip speak? He proclaimed the good news of Jesus. He heralded that apostolic message straight from the king of kings. Lives were being changed, touched, transformed. Joy came to a town. Joy came to a town as a result of obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Acts here speaks of a city, Samaria. I'd like to narrow that funnel down just for a moment. What about joy in your home? Is there joy present in your home? And remember that the joy I'm speaking of is characteristic of the Holy Spirit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. If your home lacks joy, it could be perhaps that you're walking in the flesh. It could be that some in your home do not have the Spirit of Christ in them. I believe, though, a household of joy, when we consider that, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air, isn't it? We think about joy. Have you ever been inside a home filled with joy? It's a great place to be, isn't it? It's not reserved for just a select few. I would want to put that forward. You know, I'm reminded, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the times in our family when we get together to sing. When we sing during those times of family worship, there is joy in the room as we worship the King, all glorious above. There's joy expressed as we, as we sing What happens to be one of my favorite hymns? My heart can sing. When I pause to remember, a heartache here is but a stepping stone along a trail that's winding always upward. This troubled world is not my final home. But until then, my heart will go on singing. Until then, here it is, with joy I'll carry on. Until the day my eyes behold the city. Until the day God calls me home. You see, you might be in the midst and find yourself this morning in the midst of a scattering. Things look messy. They look out of ordinary. They're not right. They, you see what others are, are doing and it causes you to just... Phew. I want to put before you, God has not gone anywhere. I want to put before you that He has promised in His word He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's promised in His word that when you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. He's promised in His word that when you confess your sins to Him, that He will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's promised in His word to strengthen you. Therefore, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. God will uphold you with his righteous right hand, Isaiah says. I long for this church to have great joy. Not only in the home. What happens in the home with these family units no doubt make up this church. The parts of the body coming alongside other parts, ministering to one another, praying for one another, confessing sins to one another. I'm not making these up. These are in the Bible. Admonishing one another, bearing with one another's burdens, loving one another, pursuing the master together, desiring to be useful to the master, sharpening one another. One writer said, if the the church is central to what God is doing to display His own glory, then the church should be central to how we understand the Christian life. If you are in Christ here today, has the church been central to your understanding of what it means to be a Christian? Or has it simply been a place to come on Sunday? There is great joy when the saints come together to worship. There's great joy when each part is doing its work. I long for joy not only to be present in the homes and in this church, but if we narrow the funnel down even a little bit more, I long for some here to know the joy that only Christ can bring. Philip is scattered to Samaria and he preached Christ to them. Great joy comes out of believing in this Christ, believing in His finished work at the cross, believing that this Christ is the Son of God, believing that by faith His death on the cross atoned completely for your sins, all of them. And church, that's a vital piece of the gospel. Your sin has separated you from God. How you view your sin will determine your need factor for Jesus. You need him. We all need him. But you need to understand your need for Jesus. There's a sin problem, and it stems all the way back to Adam. The Bible says that in Adam all sinned. But through one man, this Jesus, many will be made righteous. That's the message in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. You see, because he is a holy God, and he cannot tolerate sin Sin must be punished. And God dealt with sin. He dealt with your sin, in fact, my sin. He dealt with that once for all at the cross. He took your sin upon himself, the Bible says. He was, became your substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us about this. And he began this reconciling work, bringing you unto himself. God did that through Jesus Christ. Christ is, in the Bible, termed a mediator between God and man. And Christ himself completely satisfied this wrath of God. And in the process, he made it possible for you to be clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. And so what a joy. What a joy, then, to know that his blood has covered my sins... What a joy to be called a child of God through Jesus Christ. Knowing all that he has done to make life possible for you. I'm reminded of a passage elsewhere in the scripture that speaks of the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength, isn't it not? The joy of the Lord. The great joy experienced in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. Came as a result of the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. And church we need to understand that persecution may arise in this city. May arise in this church. It may arise in your home. But your joy in Jesus Christ, no one can take away. No one. That was the message Jesus gave to his disciples, in fact, before he went to the cross. It seems like a bad thing. I'm going to be going away. It's going to be a time of sorrow. But there's going to be a period of joy. This gospel express, if you will, is moving forward here in Acts chapter 8. Martyrdom brought an immediate period of lamentation and then an explosion of persecution toward the church in Jerusalem. Which led to a scattering. The church went everywhere, according to the text. Went everywhere, preaching the word. And then we see one man, Philip went to Samaria where he preached Christ to them. The text says that the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken, heeded the words preached. Lives were changed upon hearing and seeing the gospel in action. Seeds were being planted for the furtherance of the gospel. Is the church at hope in Christ? This is all of us here. Are we about planting seeds to further the gospel? I'm not talking about some program that we would do. I'm speaking about a people whose head is Christ, a people inclined to carry out the will of the Father with the power endued from on high, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, a people desiring to be witnesses to Jesus. Are you going to spend the remainder of your days? Days, by the way, you don't know how many he has yet to give you. Are you willing to spend the rest of your days simply for the furtherance of your own priorities, your own ways of doing things, your own hobbies, furthering your own, at the expense of the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Church, we have a message to tell to the nations. Amen? That the Lord who reigns up above has sent us his son to save us and show us that God is love. I pray we would live that out and walk that out, that people would not only hear the message preached, but would see the message lived out in our own lives. Let's pray. Father I'm grateful for your word thank you that it has power to save I thank you Lord that it is profitable for our soul I thank you Father for this word which points us to Jesus from Genesis to Revelation the central theme the central message is that of Christ and the difference that Christ makes oh Father I pray that as a church as we read about a another church, this church in Jerusalem, in the midst of their persecution. I pray, Father, that this text would breathe life into us, would encourage us, help us perhaps to see a bigger picture than our own trial, our own concerns. Father, I realize, and I'm not minimizing the concerns and the trials that are here before us in this body. There are many. But Father, I do pray a text such as the one that we've read this morning would awaken us to a much bigger picture, a much bigger purpose that you have. Father, I pray that being a witness to Jesus in the midst of trial and persecution, Lord, may we be diligent. May we be found faithful to see that your word goes out and to see that our lives are accompanying what is being preached. Give us grace to do these things well, I pray, Father. May we walk by faith, not by sight. May we trust in you for all things. May we see that you are sovereign and in control. And even though there are times when we may not understand fully what you're doing, what you're up to, may we walk by faith holding on to you trusting in your word being fully convinced that what you have promised you are fully able to perform thank you Father for Jesus thank you for the joy that you've given to us in Christ I pray that we would be a people full of joy full of gratitude for what you have done for us, may we truly be a people who walk in newness of life, telling others about the good news of Jesus. We ask for your help in this. We thank you for the help you have given to us in the Holy Spirit. Pray, Father, we would walk as your Spirit leads us. Pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior, our rock and Redeemer, our strong tower to whom we can run. Amen.